Hello, everybody. This is the Cincinnati Herald Podcast. I'm your host, John Alexander Reese, digital editor of the Cincinnati Herald. And if you didn't know, the Cincinnati Herald has been around since 1955 and is the largest African-American newspaper in the greater Cincinnati area. Today, I have with me co-host and media consultant of the Cincinnati Herald, Andrea Carter. How are you doing today, Andrea? Fine. How are you, John? I'm doing fantastic. And we also have our circulation director of the Cincinnati Herald, Wade Lacey Sr. How are you doing today, Wade? I'm doing great, and it is good to be here, John. Good to hear. And we also have with us our Herald intern, Suhana Sinhan. How are you doing today, Suhana? I'm doing fine, John. How are you? I'm doing excellent. And we also have our other Herald intern, Maeve Hamlet. How are you doing today, Maeve? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. And we also have a special guest today, Editor-in-Chief for the Minnesota Spokesman Recorder, Mel Reeves. How are you doing today, sir? Oh, I'm good. And yourself? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for coming on today. So before we head into our main topic, here are some top news stories of the week. Nicole Hannah-Jones is a Pulitzer-winning staff writer and investigative journalist for New York Times who covers civil rights in the U.S. In 2020, Jones was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Essay in the New York Times on History of Slavery. Her 1619 project was created to reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of Black Americans at the center of the United States uh, national narrative. Her 1619 project was at the center of criticism by conservatives, including the former president, Donald Trump. Hannah Jones is an alumnus of the University of Northern Carolina, Chapel Hill. Last month, the university announced that Hannah Jones would join the Husband School of Journalism and Media as the night chair in race and investigative journalism. However, it was learned that her position would not be tenored. Andrea, your thoughts on this story? Well, I I think um, the UNC bowing to a very wealthy donor chose to not offer Nicole Hannah-Jones tenure, especially in response to the 1619 project that she helped to create. Um, But I think they are, the backlash to what UNC has done is so intense that they're now reconsidering giving her tenure. Um, and it, you know, it's coming out that this donor, as soon as it was up for offer, as soon as they were offering her tenure, he was on the email list to the board saying, you better not. And I, I think that's a shame because how are we, a, as a journalist, you have to be have that trust with the community that what we write is the truth. Whether you like it or not, you have to accept what is written. And you know, take it for a fact or whatever. You don't have to like it, but you have to accept and respect the ability of what the project was and how intense it was. And you know, people. So there are certain people in the community, or I should say, in the world, have a difficult time accepting what the 1619 project says. And when you can't face the truth, this is the reaction that you get. And I think this is the whole thing that's that's about. Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones' situation. Wade, your thoughts on this story? I think it's politics in general at the highest level. Not just the the one donor, a lot of powerful conservatives uh, were really uh, upset with with her. And it it gets back to the old thing, well, a lot of times when you have a a Black, uh, it's like, go sit in the corner and, and, and sit there and do what we tell you to do. Don't be a part of something that we don't agree with. Or otherwise, we'll you'll face the consequences, and that was the case here. 
Uh, ultimately, I think because of the backlash that they're receiving and all that, I think she would probably go ahead and and and, and work tenure. But uh, it's just politics as usual. Uh, we've seen it for many, many years. Uh, if you don't, or if you go against the grain, uh, everyone wants to believe everything was like happy days uh, and, and everything. Everything was fine. Everybody was laughing. Everything was, was, was scary and everything. But when someone comes and put food in front of them, they get upset. Suhana, your thoughts on the story? Um, John, this is um, quite an interesting story because 1916 project is quite revolutionary in general, and I recommend the readers, or sorry, our listeners to check it out. But I find it quite hard to believe that um, maybe I'm naive, but uh, I find it difficult to understand why her 1916 project will be affecting her not getting a tenure. I believe in, in my being a university student, in myself, I think it must be a lot about internal politics because uh, maybe the university wants good professors but not provide them permanency in some way. Or maybe it's just that women, women uh, professors or employers are paid sometimes less. Maybe that could be a case. Or in general, I believe it's more of a university politics. But if it's beyond that and it has to do something with the 1916 project and the race of the individual, along with all the politics that comes with the university. I think it's quite a disturbing and sad situation. She is clearly a very qualified individual and the, her joining the university would bring a great reputation to it, which the university already has. But uh, I, I just want the university to start uh, giving out their statement and explain the situation, though I don't know, I don't think it will, uh, help their case much better unless they provide a better deal or something else happens to this. But uh, I think I'm naive to believe that uh, these two things are separate. And I really wish that it's just university politics and not the age-old thing that we have been talking and fighting about. Maeve, your thoughts? I think this situation is a prime example of systemic racism that's placed in America and also the denial of freedom of press. Um, I think it's really concerning and there should be a lot more news on this story just because these actions are serious. And um, I think the university with, you know, not allowing her tenure is sending like a very clear, broad message to its students that it's not supporting free press. And that's a very concerning thing, especially with um, such a big establishment. John, I would like to add last one last thing, which oh, is, yeah. uh, uh, which is the, uh, she has, uh, you know, the piece that she has written about in her 1916 project talks so much about the job and, uh, uh, and Amer Black Americans, you know, getting opportunity and feeling American to be, and trying to work and get better opportunity in this country country to be more part of this country. And at the same time, after writing a piece which is so close to the job market, she experiences something so similar, like not, not, nothing similar to the experience her, uh, uh, the ancestors of the African-American community has in America, but so similar to the discrepancy people have in the job market. And I think if you know, look from a little distance, you can see so much challenges yet in this country's remaining, if you just read her piece and see the story. Now, moving on to our next story. 
There hasn't been a grocery store in Avondale since Aldi closed in 2008. The Country Meat Company Marketplace will finally take that space when it opens in early 2022. The Country Meat Company Marketplace, which is owned by Tanel and Chanel Bryant, will split the space with the Urban League of Greater Southwestern Ohio Center for Social Justice. Andrea, your thoughts on this story? I think it's a long time coming. Avondale has suffered a lot. They've been a food desert for the longest time. I mean, with each um, time they've had a grocery store and then it's gone away, it's been a struggle for um, residents in the area who don't have transportation to get to a grocery store. And um, I think I think it's a good thing. I think decent food, that's fruits and vegetables coming to um, the neighborhood is a plus. This is a win. Also, the Avondale Town Center is being revitalized. You're seeing new businesses there. Um, you have new people coming in. So I think whatever the grocery store that's going to come in is going to have a better chance of surviving than declining um, this time around. And I'm very, very happy that it's coming. And I can't wait to try it out myself because I live right near where this store is going to be. Wade, your thoughts? I think it's a big plus for the uh, neighborhood with all the revitalization and all the business and things that they're developing there and all of this should. Uh, hopefully it will, like uh, Ms. Carter say, uh, give them a leg up uh, in terms of surviving. Uh, that spot has had uh, numerous uh, grocery stores there over the years since I've been here in Cincinnati. And it's just been a hard place to, to keep open uh, for various reasons talk about the Audi being there, but I remember going back, I know Oscar Robinson has a part on it in a store there or something years ago. Also, uh, it's been a hard place to, to keep open. Um, I, I look forward to it. I, I hope that they're able to, to do well there. I hope that the public will support them uh, once they're there, not just that first year, you know, because uh, everybody comes out, it's like when they open up a new church, everybody comes out, and uh, and says, yay, yay, rah, rah, we love you, we love you, and then they disappear. So I hope, hopefully, that that won't happen. I also hope that they have uh, people surrounding them that will not let what happened to the young lady that had mahogany's down at the banks happen to them. Uh, so, uh, like I said, it's a hard, hard uh, nut to crack at that location, but hopefully things have changed over the years and they will be successful. Suhana, your thoughts on the story? Um, John, since pandemic, uh, we have heard news of so many businesses closing down. It's in one way almost refreshing to hear a new business opening up. And uh, after reading this news, I wondered, like whenever I selected my apartment, I never really considered how convenient uh, or what a distance a grocery store is from me. I always looked at the rent aspect. But for the first time, like, listening to the story, I have come to this realization that a grocery store is such an essential need thing. Living close to Kroger, I just never really thought about the convenience of a grocery store nearby. So I'm excited for people in Avondale. I totally can understand how important it is to have a walkable distance of grocery store around you. And uh, I wish the business all the best. And People, I'm very happy for them so that they can get more food options. But um, as uh, Wade said, um, you know, customers come, they're excited and some, and soon they disappear. I, the 
owners have great plans for the business and they plan to, if this becomes a very successful revenue model, they want to extend it to other business, other towns and you know expand the businesses. I, I just hope that uh, it works out for them instead of their customers disappearing. I hope it works out. Maeve, your thoughts? I think this is great news. Um, I think having a grocery store in your neighborhood is essential for life. You know, it makes it so much more difficult when you have to travel 30 minutes, 20 minutes by walking or whatnot to go get food. Um, I think having fresh produce and fresh meat close to your house is so important. I do hope the grocery store that they're putting in is affordable. I also think that's necessary to have, you know, options for everybody of all incomes but yeah i wish the best to the business and i'm excited for the people of avondale and now moving on to our next story naomi osaka announced monday she is withdrawing from the french open the announcement on her social media accounts comes one day after the heads of the four major tennis organizations wrote a letter in which osaka was fined fifteen thousand dollars for not participating in press conferences at the event and threatened more penalties if she continued to not engage with the media at grand slam events Last week, a few days before the French Open started, Osaka posted on social media that she was not going to participate in media briefings at the tournament at Roland Garros Stadium. She cited mental health concerns, saying she often felt that people have no regard for athletes' mental health and that press conferences can cause some to break down. Andrea, your thoughts on this topic? Well, I think an athlete knows better what their body is telling them, what they can and cannot handle. And I think the fact that she, at a young age, received a large amount of fame, which excited and scared her at the same time. But I think the fact how she got her fame is that she did this awesome thing. She beat Serena Williams. And at the same time, she got booed for beating Serena Williams. And that could be a devastating effect on your confidence. And I think it weighed heavily on her. Serena tried to make up for it, you know, that whole situation. She went on again to win again and beat Serena again. And um, I, I think it's just, um, she is a good, te- she's a good tennis player. I think she's going to do well in the game, but I think she needs to get a little help to get out of her head and deal with the situation and deal with fame and then come back stronger and heavier stronger and lighter, I should say. But I think also the sports organizations in the tennis world needed to take a sensitive arm to what she was saying. Because when John McEnroe had a temper tantrum and didn't do a press conference, they didn't find him. I know they find the tennis players for other things, but um, I think they need to take a sensitive hand with tennis players, especially people of color, when they say they have an issue. Usually they're not faking when they have an issue. Wade, your thoughts? Well, I knew when she made her statement before the tournament that that she wasn't going to uh, speak to the press that there was going to be a problem uh, because uh, all the sports now have, have pretty much made it mandatory for the, the athletes to uh, come to the press. But uh, they took it to another level when the Wimbledon, I'm going to mention their names, Wimbledon, U.S. Open, and the Australia Open all got together and before she ever stepped foot on their courts, they actually threatened to ban her from coming if she continued to do what she was doing at the French. And this is unprecedented, okay? It's one thing for the French Open to take their actions and find her or whatever they were going to do, but for the other three majors 
before she ever stepped foot on there, they was telling her that if she continued to do what she was doing at the French Open, that they were going to ban her from playing at their event. And again, that's uh, <laughs> that's a real, real big step. And so that's that's one issue there. That's that's very important there that they was trying to uh, intimidate and force her at that point. The other thing is that, as some of you may know, over the last maybe three years or so, there has been a big push uh, in, in the uh, sports area about mental health, mostly coming from the NBA. That's where the biggest thing is, the biggest awareness thing has come from. Other athletes and other sports are starting to come out and talk about it and everything, but the NBA has been the biggest one. And so I think that there was that underswelling, as, as, as that issue was starting to grow and all that. But now with her and this happening, it's going to be just like a big snowball that continues to roll and gets, gets bigger. And ultimately, I think that uh, a lot of the, uh, the uh, sports uh, world will, will, will start making uh, some, some adjustments for this issue uh, and, and seek to find out uh, how they can better serve the athletes going forward. The other thing is that that weighs on this so uh, differently is that not only is she such a great tennis player and looks to, looks to be the next great one that start winning major after major, which she's already has done, but the other thing is that she's a, a social activist and she has done some great things over the last couple of years. And I think a lot of people are afraid of that and uh, they're gonna try to silence her. But I think with the move that they've just made that uh, everybody's gonna back off. And I think that uh, things are gonna start opening up big time for uh, mental health, uh, especially with athletes. Suhana, your thoughts? Um, John, as Naomi even mentioned uh, in her statements that uh, the system, the rules are really old and they must be changed. I find it quite uh, harsh that instead of you know see, speaking to her or seeking out any other options, they directly chose to find her. This is quite harsh and uh, this kind of rules should be really taken down. If you really read the press statement organization leaves out, uh, releases it to public, it will all the the statement almost makes sense to you if you don't understand mental health of someone's at all. If you try, at least if people give some effort and try to see this case from an athlete's perspective, uh, one can realize that mental health is quite complicated, and uh, you know where creativity and uh, business often have a tough time coming together because sometimes this kind of situations happen. But I expected the organization where she participates regularly should provide some leniency instead of just publicly finding her like that. I, I thought that was very rude of them to do that. And um, it's, not, it's not really nice, at, at least in 2021, it's not cool anymore. Maeve, your thoughts on this story? I think it's absolutely ridiculous that she was fined $15,000 for not speaking to the press. But I think her withdrawing from the French Open was such a power move, basically symbolically saying like, you're gonna listen to me and you're gonna acknowledge my mental health and what I'm going through, or I'm not gonna compete for you. Because you know, her competing in these um, competitions is benefiting them too. So because she is such a rising, you know, athlete star, 
they're definitely going to lose some viewers if she's not competing in it. So I'm proud of her for stepping away from such a, an important event and, you know, putting herself first because we will never know what she goes through and she's such in a public light. I can't even imagine how difficult it is for such a young woman of color to go through those things. So props to her. I'm proud of her. And I hope they really start to consider the mental health of these athletes. Uh, John, I also wanted to mention that the last time you had any actions like this, that's this huge was back in 1973. And the men uh, refused to play. Most of the men, uh, the top players and everything, uh, did not play at Wimbledon in 1973. And that brought a lot of big change in, in some of the uh, rules and th things at that time. Okay, well, that's some of the top news topics of the week, and I will hand it over to Andrea. Thank you, John. Today, we have a very special guest with us. It's Mel Reeves. He is the editor of the Minneapolis Spokesman Recorder, and he has been leading the editorial coverage of the Derek Chauvin trial, the anniversary of George Floyd, and the um, upcoming trial of Kim Potter. And uh, we invited him on today to talk about what's going on in Minneapolis and how um, we need to take stock of what's, been, what's happening there. And um, Mel, can you um, update us? Hi, Andrew, how are you? Fine, how are you? So um, you pretty much told everybody what's going on. Um, what what, what uh, do you think your audience would be interested in knowing that the trial of Kim Potter is uh, a long ways away? So is the trial of the other three officers. In fact, that was scheduled for August and now that's been put off till December 7th, I think. And Kim Potter's trial, I think, is the month before that. I can't remember offhand. But anyway, those trials are a little ways off. Um, so um, what, what, what would you like to know? I would say, what is the state right now in Minneapolis? Because, you know, you've had this before. Everyone was very happy and excited when Derek Chauvin got convicted. And he's going to be sentenced on June 25th. What is the, where do we go from here? I mean, it's rare to have a police officer convicted of a crime. But what do we do with this symbol of, yes, it can happen? Um, well, we have to keep working. I mean, um, I think it's overstated to say that, you know, people were, I think people were happy, but, you know, they weren't like happy in the sense that, oh, okay, now this has happened, we can move on. It's just like probably in Cincinnati, the response we had in Cincinnati, you know, it was a muted response, I'm sure. People were glad that he was convicted. It was a short celebration. But it was it was toned down by the fact by the realization that you know this is still going on right people are still being killed by the police, uh, you know we have to keep it in perspective you know after it happened I had a bunch of folks from overseas and some white reporters asking well, how do people feel you know it's like you know feelings got nothing to do with it I mean, you know we're still catching hell in this country <laughs> so it was great we got a conviction and I think what people ought to take from that was the fact that. Uh, it took people going to the streets and making demands. And and, and uh, yeah, I hear from too many people sometimes that, oh, a protest doesn't work. Well, this 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 conviction flies in the face of that idea. You know, people are, what's the word? They, people throw around ideas and opinions 
that have no basis in fact. You know, one of the things that drives me crazy is people don't really do their research. You know what I'm saying? But if you research protests, you realize, oh, it is an effective tool. And it's why uh, George Floyd was put on trial as well, as well as the other three uh, officers were charged. And, uh, you know, it probably had something to do with why he was convicted. Um, and so, you know, we, we are in the same place in the sense that uh, even in Minneapolis, there's been no, there's been talk about uh, police reform. The city council is talking about uh, reorganizing the police force, putting it under a different umbrella. Um, we're going to, there's going to be a vote to change the charter so we can do some different things with the police. But here's the deal. Um, and probably no municipality in the country, very few, uh, there are there any real mechanisms to hold the police accountable. So the police uh, commit some misconduct. In Cincinnati, I'm sure that, you know, you can come and file a complaint, but nothing's going to happen to that cop. You know, they might wag a finger at him at some point, but maybe unless he has 10 complaints or something, maybe somebody might take a look at it. So we live in a society fundamentally that allows the police to do what they want to do. So so we don't get too excited, you know, about the conviction. We, we realize that it was a win. But at the same time, we realize we have to look at this thing. You know, we're not looking at this thing from the comfort of, of, of well-off white folks. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, we, we got to look at this thing as working class people, uh, you know, uh, who struggle with this thing, that we've still got some struggles. And so, you know, it's not like, oh, we had this contest and we won it, let's move on. No, we're still catching hell. Um, you know, uh, during the trial, Derek, uh, Dante Wright was murdered by uh, a Brooklyn Center cop who said she reached for the wrong, you know, she's reaching for a taser. And, and, but anyway, so it points to the fact that this is still a problem. And, and so, we still have to, to figure out how to, how to solve it. And I think ultimately uh, we're going to have to end the system of policing as we know it. I mean, that's the ultimate solution. Um, and the, and the short, in the short term, we've got to force city governments to hold the police accountable. We've got to force them, whatever it takes. I'm not sure what it's going to take at this point, but folks got to get creative. You got to force city government to hold police departments accountable, like just like you do on your job. Any, anybody else's job, they're held accountable. They misbehave, they they commit some infraction, or they break the rules. There's a consequence. The the police is one of the very few organizations in the, in the country that can do what they want to do with very little con consequence. So it has to stop there. Um, and so getting to your point, getting uh, Chauvin convicted uh, will make it probably easier to get Kim Potter convicted. Uh, and other and other locales, but even while Chauvin was com convicted, uh, uh, we saw uh, I can't think of the kid's name now, the guy's name, but we saw uh, them pretty much uh, exonerate the cop that shot uh, uh, the kid in Milwaukee seven times in the back. Um, mm. You know, in North Carolina, they they were withholding video. Uh, so in other places, they're still justifying this thing. So this is the problem. It's not a Minneapolis problem. It's a national problem. Uh, and and so we, I don't get carried away. As you can tell by, by the stuff we wrote, in fact, if you, you said you read my writing, so you know after I wrote it, I said that it was tempered by the fact that, that the, the victory was tempered by the fact that we are still facing this stuff, you know? So anyway, so we, 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 we have got work to do. And we've got to keep protesting in any form it takes uh, and keep putting pressure on, on city governments and even the federal government. I mean, think about this. The federal government hasn't even passed like lukewarm reform. And that's pretty much what's in that George Floyd reform bill. Uh, it's nothing major. It doesn't get at the fundamental problem with policing. Uh, but they can't pass that. So we're, we, we, we're in trouble on some level. People are talking, 
And, uh, you know, I, you know, they get on these liberal broadcasts and tell me, oh, things have changed. Well, what exactly changed? You know what I'm saying? Things have not changed. Uh, we've got a, a victory, but that doesn't mean we're going to get a victory in, in, in North Carolina or in Texas and Florida or in Ohio next time they kill somebody. Um, so we have work to do. Now, one of the concessions that have been made in some places, and they're working on that here too, two things that would help, I think, lower the death rate is if they take uh, mental health calls away from the police. We talked about this year. And also, uh, the Brooklyn Center uh, City uh, Council passed a resolution. It's a resolution, mind you, not, a, not an ordinance. So it's, it's a resolution. It's, these are some things we'd like to see happen or we hope to see happen, but they're not enforced by law. They're not encoded in law. So they're, they're just aspirational. Um, and so they, uh, they passed, uh, they passed a resolution yesterday that, that talked about taking away um, traffic enforcement from cops, especially around, you know, the petty stuff. Uh, you know, tabs, uh, you know, just uh, this basic traffic enforcement. They, they talked about taking it away from armed officers. That would probably lower the death rate. And also they talked about uh, setting up mental health uh, counselors and mental health hotline that people can call into rather than call the police. So those two things would uh, would help and would probably reduce the number of people who kill because, you know, a lot of folks who are killed by the police are struggling with mental health issues. And you know they're killed because though you know people are still not clear about who the police are and what their roles are, um, you know when they when the police run into you, their first thing is for you to comply. And so if you can't comply, you wind up getting hurt because that that's their thing. You have to comply. They represent the state, and and if you can't comply with them, you're pretty much saying you're not going to comply with the state. And that's why people get hurt because you know mental people struggle with mental illness sometimes or some kind of mental break. Uh, they can't comply. In fact, sometimes people who are high, uh, they get beat down by the police because they cannot comply. And that's what the cops want you to do when they run into you is comply. And that's where a lot of problems, of course, that's where people get shot and whatever, because they did not comply immediately. So I hope that answers your question. <laughs> it, it, well, it, it does. I mean, I, I would just say that it is, um, I, I, it was kind of like the Chauvin conviction was a shot around the world about of what could be and the mm -hmm. show that um, police officers need to stop and think about what they do when faced, even though it's a split, split second decision on certain things, this gentleman had time to put, you know, to pick his knee up. The officers involved also had, could have forced him off George Floyd. I mean, so many scenarios that could have happened where the outcome could have been different. Um, do you think that with the Chauvin trial, the police departments around the country are going to change how they train and change how they respond to certain situations. I'm glad you said that because I don't see any indication of that. In fact, one of the things, and, and uh, we're going to get around to writing about them, there are several things that are revealed in the, in the trial, if you paid attention. We, we mentioned a few of them in our coverage. Uh, one of them is that the, uh, the knee to the back, now, now the knee to the neck was necessary part of training. But the knee to the back and upper shoulder was part of his training. And so um, that was part of the training. Um, that hasn't changed. There's no, the police departments around the country train people to put their knee to the back. Uh, now, one thing that did it did change in Minneapolis, New York, three places, they've outlawed chokeholds, but they did some of that before this trial. Um, so they've outlawed chokeholds, but the rest of the training 
it's still the same. You got to remember that, and it came out in a trial of Muhammad Noor when he killed Justine Dumont two, two, three years ago now in the summer. Uh, a strange deal where she called uh, 911 and late at night, and uh, she heard a woman yelling in her uh, her alley. She thought a woman was being raped, so she called the police. And uh, when the police kind of pulled into her alley, for whatever reason, she ran out of her house in a nightgown or, or a bathrobe or whatever and uh, wanted to get the police's attention because maybe she thought they were wrong. Anyway, when she, I guess, banged on the car, he shot her. And in that trial, his partner testified that the police had the perspective that it's us versus them. That's what he said, that, you know, when we take to the streets, it's us versus you, it's us versus them. And that's the police's perspective. And so the rest of the, you know, it was like, you know, it's like something goes on in people's houses and what goes in their house, you have no idea. You know, you think that you know about what go on, what, what people are about. And then you find out they have a whole different perspective. And that's the same thing with police. You know, we think we know what goes on in their house, but we don't. Um, you know, they have a different perspective. They That's why people get hurt, because they are an aggressive force. They even hire some people who are extra aggressive. Um, you know, Derek Chauvin, and I... I this is, just, this is my theory. I think every police force hires what we used to call thumpers. Uh, I think they even hire a few folks. They know that even when they, they test them, that they're a little, they're a little on the social, uh, socially maladjusted side. In fact, some are, are very socially maladjusted. In fact, my theory with, with Derek Chauvin is that he's a psychopath. Mm-hmm. And that, that should sound crazy. Um, there's several cops running around. You always tell the psychopath. He's always the one that goes too far. But the police are there to enforce uh, um, uh, a relationship, not necessarily enforce a law. And we got to stop talking like that. I mean, their training is us versus them. They, let's face it, they over police in black neighborhoods on purpose. They know that's their job. They're hostile to black people because that's part of their job. We, we don't want to believe it, but that has nothing to do with the reality. And in fact, the statistics bear out the reality. Uh, you know, they over-police in our community. We, we get over-jailed and, you know, the, the whole criminal court system is, is designed pretty much to keep black people in a certain spot. Now, no doubt, are black people committing crimes? Sure are. But, you know, we have a society that sets them up to commit more crimes. So you have to look at this politically, sister. I look at the, I'm an activist and I look at this stuff politically. So the training uh, is designed to do just what they're doing. And that came out in the trial. Uh, oh, the other thing I was going to point out is that so Derek Chauvin, uh, George Floyd kept saying, I can't breathe. Do you know that in most departments train the police that if somebody's saying they can't breathe, they can breathe because they're talking? Yes, that's right. Came out in the trial. And this has happened several times all over the country. People have been murdered saying they can't breathe because the cops are trained to believe if you're saying you can't breathe, that doesn't mean you can't breathe. That's kind of insane, but that's the kind of sophomore uh, uh, quackery that, uh, that they're taught, you know, they're not real medical professionals don't oversee police training. And maybe a few locales, that's probably the case, but most, you know, they go with this sophomore amateurs, uh, you know, uh, training book that has these ideas that are, you know, that are, are not based in any real medicine. Uh, also, uh, they have uh, justified, they've come up with this thing called excited delirium, which justifies with the medical uh, uh, examiners have kind of created to justify the police killing, uh, especially black people who've gotten out of control. So, so, so the training is part of the problem and they're not going to change the training. People talked about it years ago. They're not going to change it. The, the training, the police exist uh, to pretty much reinforce, you know, the rules in the society. They, they, they reinforce stereotypes. They, 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 they serve to exist. They exist 
to uh, um, on behalf of the, to serve the power structure, not us. That's why this stuff keeps happening. And until we see it for what it really is, we won't change it. That's the other reason why it's difficult because we because we I understand that because I know you all probably had this problem in Cincinnati as well. We've got a lot more international crime, so-called black on black crime. So people are desperate, like, well, we need the police. Well, you need to be safe and you need to have a community patrol or something helps keep you safe but you don't need a, a body of people to come into your neighbor whose job is not really to, to stop crime if you notice police solve very little crime it's their job is to stop you their job is to harass you make you feel small their, their job is to reinforce the stereotypes in our society which is why they were policing our community right you arrest more black people by having more cops there it says that black people are more criminal so it's time that we understand who the police are and they're not who we think they are. And they, they are trained to do what they're doing. If they, and we have to apply common sense. If they were trained to do something different, they would do something different. <laughs> so. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I would say, I guess my final question would be, is, what do you tell, you said you're an activist. What would you tell um, the young activists today, the ones who were out there protesting a year ago, now is one year later, we're seeing what's going on. What is the next step for our young people to speak up and speak out and say enough is enough? Well, that's a broad question, so I'll answer it broadly. Um, they need to understand the society they live in, the real society. They need to understand it. They need to understand the politics of it, the economics. They need to understand the system that undergirds. They need to understand the system of capitalism and how it's undermined, buttressed by white supremacy. Uh, the time for us being naive is past. Uh, as I always tell people, the polar ice caps are melting. So we're going down anyway. So their job, to be honest with you, the next generation's job and the people who are alive right now's job is to create a society for human beings. Create a society in which we don't have the police. We don't have a police force. We don't require a police force to hold the population down, you see. Part of the reason we have this system of policing is because the system, the, the system of capitalism requires it. So we have to create a system that requires a kind of gentler um, police force, for lack of a better word. So I would I would advise young people to read, to study. Any problem that you run into, study. If there's a problem in housing, you're facing gentrification, understand what that means. Uh, you know, understand what racism is and white supremacy. Understand, like I'm trying to explain, what the real role of police is. Read, there's a great pamphlet that will help you understand what the police really are. It's called The uh, Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. It's put out by something called Indie Press. You can look it up on, on, online, you put in your browser, pop up and, and download it, and you'll educate you about who the police really are. Uh, most Black people understand that they got the origins in slavery, but then we stopped there. That not only was the origin of slavery, but they also uh, served as a force that, 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 that the ruling class used to keep workers in their place. In fact, you know, the police also uh, kept immigrants in their place. They, they, their job was to, you know, make sure that immigrants did what they were supposed to do and they didn't get out of hand. Same thing with workers. It's just like now, if you get in a debate, dispute with a corporation or in a store, they call the police. Police are going to take their word of yours, no matter if you're right or not. So anyway, that's what I would say. You have to understand the system we live under. Um, and, and continue to, to oppose fully police violence, continue to, to demand accountability, you know, demand that the city changes charter, demand whatever needs to happen, we just keep at it. You, you got to keep organizing, got to keep protesting, keep educating yourself, because once people really understand what they're up against, that's when they begin to really fight back, which is why in our history, you know, we, we had the civil rights movement, or the Freedom Now movement, but, you know, we had the Black Panthers that 
they at the bottom understood, just like Malcolm X and Martin King, which is why they're not here anymore, that ultimately we've got to change this system. Remember, my, I think Malcolm X said that, listen, <laughs> he, said it's, he said the chicken cannot produce a duck egg. He says, right, he says that the, 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 he said they're both files, but the chicken has a certain system, so it can't produce a duck egg because its system will only allow it to produce a chicken. So we have to produce a system. We have to create a system that produces what we want, ultimately justice, equality, and freedom. And we have to fight for it because this system clearly is not working for us. And, and all you have to do is look at what happened in Tulsa 100 years ago and, and look at the fact that some of those attitudes still exist. So, uh, <laughs> so sorry, Andrew, I, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything for anybody. We are up against it. And, 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 and the, the pandemic exposed it. And we don't change this system. We're going to always be having these conversations because these problems are endemic to this system. Well, no, no, I, I didn't want you to sugarcoat it, but I want you to, to speak your truth. I've heard you speak before. <laughs> and I mean, it, it, I mean, we have had, um, we have not in the past, the black community has not taught their young people how to protest. What we did in the 60s did not carry through. Once we got what we wanted and what we saw it, we were like, mm -hmm. okay, we made it. Yay, we don't have to do right. this anymore. And we stopped protesting. We stopped working hard for that because we, we, we sort of found a nirvana. Now mm -hmm. we're, we have to do it all over again, even though things are not going to go all the way back, but we have to pick up where we left off and move forward, but with a generation that does not know or can connect as well to what happened prior to the 60s and the Civil Rights Act and, I mean, Civil Rights Movement and the Voting Rights Bill and all the other things that were hard fought for, uh, which are now slowly trying to be eroded by the Republican Party and what they're trying to do. Thank you, Mel, for coming on. Greatly appreciate all the commentary. Thank you all for, ha for having me. Love to do this again when we have a little more time and <laughs> flesh out oh, some definitely. things. Definitely. Thank you, Mel. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And I want to thank Andrea, Suhana, Wade, and Maeve for coming on too and sharing their thoughts on some of the news stories of the week. If you like the stories you heard today, make sure to check out our website at the www.thecincinnatiherald.com. You can also check out our print edition, which is sold at your local Kroger, UDF, Walgreens, Joseph F. Booksellers, and at select service stations. And make sure to subscribe to our podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Audible, Amazon Music, and TuneIn Radio. Just search for the Cincinnati Herald podcast. Follow us on social media. Follow the Cincinnati Herald on Facebook. Follow us at Cincy Herald on Twitter, Instagram. Follow us on YouTube. Just search for the Herald TV. And make sure to sign up for Owning It, Ohio and Kentucky, the home ownership webinar, which is on Saturday, June the 12th from noon to 1.30. Get your tickets now. The link is in the uh, podcast description. I'm John Alexander Reese, digital editor of the Cincinnati Herald, and have a good day. <laughs>